I always smile when that song is sung. Uh, the words were written actually by a student of mine at Paradise Mennonite School near Hagerstown. And I sent her the tune and said, I would like, she was a wonderful poet as a student. And so I sent her that uh, tune and I said, I want you to write words for this. And a long time elapsed and finally I got the words and she said, well, <laughs> I finally wrote this because I wanted to get this off my chest, literally. She said it was on the chest in my bedroom and I wanted <laughs> the space. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the back of your sheet. <clears throat> There's a little theme song we're going to sing. And this uh, text sort of has a story too. It's Revelation 2.10, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. In 1967, I attended the Mennonite World Conference in Amsterdam, and uh, a group got up and sang this text, one of the most beautiful pieces of choral music I have ever heard. In fact, we all thought it was so beautiful that we all got copies of it, and on the way home we stopped and by the, got out in front of the vehicle, and by the headlights we sang the song. And I tried desperately to find that piece, to put it in my hymnal. I couldn't find it. So now you have to sing it to this little tune that I made up. Okay. Be thou faithful unto death. Uh, this, this text has just had a tremendous impression on me ever since that time. I was 20 years old. And be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Let's all sing the melody. No, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life, a glorious crown of life. Now the parts. Be the death, and I will give thee a crown of life, a glorious crown of life. Now, I would like for the tenors to sing the melody for the sopranos to sing the tenor, and for the altos and basses to sing your regular parts. Do, ready, be the under uh, 19 uh, keep the parts you just sang and those who are older than 19 go back to your original parts we'll have six parts here already be the I can see that one of the great blessings I'm going to have this week is the singing. <laughs> and of course, it's a special pleasure to see what songs you're choosing out of my book, <laughs> which ones you like. Shall we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you so much that you have promised to give us a crown of life. And Lord, we do experience 
the essence of that while we're still here. There is a real crown of life that we enjoy amidst the suffering and the trials. And I thank you so much for the lesson we just heard. It is true. Life comes by death. Help us in this session to learn some specifics about that and to not only learn them, but Lord, commit ourselves to follow in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there's your outline. Uh, I was uh, having to decide whether I wanted to teach 1 Peter or 2 Peter. I have always enjoyed these two books. Uh, Peter was a very practical person. And the first book he wrote earlier, then he wrote the second book, and that was when the church was really being persecuted. And so you will find that 1 Peter is about <clears throat> glory amid trial. And the point he tries to make in that book is that uh, trials bring a special glory to the Christian life. And the Apostle Paul understood that because he said uh, that I may be conformed to the image of Christ, to the fellowship of his suffering. And the Apostle Paul understood that to experience the power of God, it involved that aspect of Christ's life as well. And Peter actually makes a tremendous statement at the end of his book where he says, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of the glory of God resteth upon you. There's a special glory that comes to those who suffer that I think that I don't know much or anything about that people who have suffered understand. So that's the first book, Glory Amid Trial. And then before the end of Peter's life, he saw there was another tremendous threat to the church, and that was error, apostasy. We don't read anything about apostasy in the first book, nothing at all. There's not a verse in that whole book that warns us against apostasy. So uh, we come into the second book, and Peter uh, is looking at a tremendous threat to the church, and we'll talk about that as we go along. And so he has a solution to the problem, this problem of false beliefs. The solution is to grow. <laughs> the best antidote to uh, uh, apostasy is growth. Uh, it's just amazing what growth does uh, in, a, in a situation where there is false beliefs. <clears throat> so I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the error that Peter was uh, up against. And, and 1 John is, is addressed to the same issue. You'll find toward the end of the apostolic age, they're all facing this tremendous threat to the church. It's a, uh, it was a doctrine that really didn't have a name at the beginning, but it finally came out uh, into uh, this idea, Gnosticism. Now, the word gnosos means knowledge. And these people were, were, were doing the first improvement on Christianity. They were trying to make Christianity compatible to Stoicism, to Greek philosophy. And uh, Greek philosophy uh, sort of had the idea that the world was created by some kind of evil force because of all the evil that's in the world. That the creator of the world uh, was actually an evil uh, being of some sort. An evil force, they would have said. They would not, I don't think, have given it any personality. But there was some kind of evil force that created the world, and that's why there's all this trouble in the world. And so they looked at the Old Testament, and they saw a God there uh, that was sort of vengeful, as they saw it. 
Uh, they did not understand the God of the Old Testament. I don't agree with them. I want to make that clear. But that's what they saw. They saw a God of the Old Testament was very different from the God of the New Testament. And I could explain to you how they arrived at his existence, how he came into being, but we'll just leave that. So, <clears throat> so they believed that the, the world was actually created by an evil God. And the God of the New Testament is a different God than that evil God. And so what is the result of that? The result was that everything that was created is inherently evil, okay, including the human body. And, of course, this had implications, then, about the person of Christ. Uh, did Christ have a human body? Oh, he couldn't possibly have had a human body because the human body is evil. So what was Christ? Well, he was a phantom. He looked like a human being, but if you tried to touch him, he wasn't there. Or if he walked on the sand, there were no footprints. I mean, he, he really wasn't a human being. He just uh, was a phantom. He looked that way. And, and that, there's a whole story then about what they did with Jesus. But the, the implication, though, that it had was, if the human body is evil, then what's our responsibility? Well, there were two, there were two conclusions. Number one... The first conclusion, which was always a very small minority of these people, believed that the human body should be beaten down. It should be punished. It should be starved. It should be try to get the human body's uh, uh, energies as low as possible so that the true human being that you are, the spirit, could come forth. And, and it, as the body was weakened, the spirit would be strengthened. And so that was one group of Gnostics, asceticism. And, of course, your whole monastic uh, uh, group of people in the Middle Ages bought into sort of that idea. You know, wear an old scratchy robe and uh, starve yourself and, you know, try to be as spiritual as you can be. The more you can get the body down, the more the spirit can prosper. As I said, that was only a small minority of them. The majority of them took the view, the body is evil, it can't be redeemed, let it do what it pleases. Worship God in the spirit. Now, I wish I could tell you that that has died. You probably, how many of you never heard of Gnosticism before? Well, you all have heard of it. Okay, so I spent my time talking about something you already knew. Okay. Uh, It hasn't died. How many of you have ever heard somebody say, don't you judge me by what I said, don't you judge me by what you saw me do, don't judge me by the way I dressed, you can't see my heart. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that. That is warmed over Gnosticism. That there's a difference between my spirit and my flesh. And the two can't ever function together. So Gnosticism is still very much alive. We don't call it that anymore, but that's what it is. Okay. And so that's what these gospel writers are up against. They're up against this philosophy that's coming in that says it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter how you live, you can worship God in the Spirit, and you can be pleasing to the God of the New Testament without that practical aspect of life. So that's what Peter is up against. He calls it damnable heresy. And it still is. It is still damnable heresy. That idea that that there's no connection between what's inside of me and what's outside of me, or the, the, the body. That is still damnable heresy. And so, he says that what this amounts to is knowledge without practice. See, this word means knowledge. And he's picking up on that. 
You're going to find the word knowledge throughout this book. You're going to find it five times in the first 11 verses. Because he, he, he's picking up on their word. And he's trying to help them understand there's a true meaning of knowledge and there's a false meaning of knowledge. And if you have true knowledge, you have a certain response. And if you have a false knowledge, you have a certain response. And so he says, this is knowledge without practice. This is life without growth. This false concept of knowledge. So what is Peter's solution? Well, it's true knowledge. (laughs) And so Peter is talking about this same word, but he adds a prefix. And it's this prefix, E-P-I. Epignosis. Epignosis. Well, what is epignosis? Well, epignosis is super knowledge. The knowledge that most people have that I would have gotten a lot of at Chippensburg University, that's the knowledge without the epi. <laughs> the epi, epic knowledge is a knowledge that moves you in, a, in the direction of total reality. It's experiential knowledge. It's a knowledge that actually works. It actually produces good fruit. And so that's the word he's using. It's the word the whole way through is the word epignosis. All right. So having said that, let's move on. The antidote is growth. Abundant life is a result of growth. You know, growth is terribly powerful. Did you ever see a tree that had grown up in the middle of a sidewalk? Well, that tree that grew up in the middle of a sidewalk, there was a seed that got under there. It miraculously got enough whatever it took to push its way up through a little crack in that concrete. And, of course, as it grows, this, it could be a huge piece of concrete that you couldn't have lifted with a crowbar. And that tree will do what you can't do. That's the kind of growth he's talking about, all right? I am come that ye might have life and that ye might have it more abundantly. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, knowledge that produces true growth. We're talking about knowledge that is experiential. It actually is a genuine knowledge. Uh, so, so I want to look now, we'll get started here right away, with the remarkable resources. It's just amazing what God has given us so that we can possess this kind of knowledge. So the title of today's message is Possess Your Potential. And so now we want to look at the potential that God has given to us. Here are the remarkable resources for a supernatural life. We start off with two words, Simon Peter. The word Simon means a hearer. (laughs) That's what Peter was. He was a hearer. The word Peter means a rock. And Peter became a rock by the kind of knowledge he's going to teach us. Okay? This fickle, unpredictable, blustering, impulsive, unstable Peter became a rock through the knowledge that he's going to tell us about. All right? He also says a little bit more about himself. He says he's a slave. 
Well, the word slave is the word doulos. It's that man in the Old Testament who said, I love my master. I can't do any better than stay right where he is and be his slave. And so you know the story. You punch the ear, and that becomes the brand that shows that you are a doulos. You are a willing slave. You are a volunteering slave. All right. I mentioned a few things here about slavery. A slave is someone who is inalienably, inalienably possessed. He can't change his master. A slave cannot change his master. Now, he could run away, but uh, that has its risk. He's, 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 he's a, somebody that does, no longer has any ownership of himself at all. Okay? Number two, he is totally at the disposal of his master. His master can do whatever he wants to do. With that slave. If he's a good master, that'll be fine. If he's a bad master, that's bad news. Number three, a slave gives unquestionable obedience to his master. And so that's why at the beginning of the Christian life, we say, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Okay. And number four, a slave is constantly in service to his master. He has no holidays. Okay. There's no, there's no break in this, in this service. He's, he's totally at the disposal of his master all the time. No will of his own, okay? Now, when I say this to people on the telephone, that Christian life begins. They didn't understand what Brother Mick was telling us this morning. When I say it begins with a total surrender to Christ, they say, well, then I don't want to be a Christian. I'm not going to, be a, I'm not going to surrender. To I mean, this is an offense, that you would, be, you would totally give up yourself. You totally give up your will. You totally give up your decisions to somebody else. I mean, I didn't realize until I started to talk to people on the telephone. This is the offense, this is the offense of the gospel. What you're going to hear from Mick this week, that's the offense of the gospel. All right? So, but I say to them, what you have to understand is you're surrendering to the person who has nothing but your best interest in mind better than your own best interest. And he has the ability to make it come to pass. He's a good master. It's the greatest honor to be a doulos of God. Here are the men who called themselves servants of God. Moses, Joshua, David, Paul, James, Jude, they all considered it an honor to be exactly what Brother Mick was telling you this morning. That was an honor. A slave in Christ's kingdom is above earth's most elevated position. When William McKinley ran for president and won, somebody asked his mother, what do you think of the fact that your son is now the president? She said, I am grieved. She said, I prayed from the time that boy was small that he'd be a preacher of the gospel, and now he's only the president of the United States. Now, we smile because we show how much influence we have had from the world's concept of greatness. And I smile, too. I'm not criticizing you. That sounds so strange that it would be more honored to be a preacher of the gospel, a slave of Jesus Christ, than to be president of the United States. But that's a true statement. That is a true statement. Then he says he's an apostle. He's going to tell us some things that are too good to be true. 
But he assures us that he is an official delegate. That's what an apostle is. He's an official delegate. He's like an ambassador. That whatever he says, his nation will stand behind it. And Peter's telling us he's an apostle. That what he's going to tell you, all of heaven is behind it. It's an official statement. It's not just his opinion. It's not just some idea that he has. He's giving you an official word from God himself. This is absolutely true. Incontrovertible. All right. And the first thing he says after that is that the Gentiles, who he's writing to, now have the same privilege that the Jews had. And that's what God always wanted. The Jewish people were supposed to be a nation through which all the nations of the earth should be blessed. They were supposed to be out there winning people to Judaism. They lost their sense of purpose, of course. But the Gentiles, he says, have received the same faith because God is righteous. God is just. That's another question that comes up on the telephone all the time. What about the people that never heard the gospel? And I said, well, Romans tells us that we all will be judged by the same standard. What did we do with what we know? And it says the Gentiles will be judged by that standard. Because we all come hardwired. There's a light that lights every man that comes into the world. Everybody, if they never had been taught, would know it's wrong to steal. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to kill. It's wrong, yeah. We all come hardwired with that. And Romans chapter 2 says that God is going to consider that. What did the people who never heard the gospel do with what they knew? Okay. In fact, that's the same question that, that we're going to be asked. There are some people who have not heard as much as other people. My children used to ask when they saw some person that they knew called herself a Christian walking down the street immodestly clad and with lipstick and cut hair and the whole nine yards. They said, was that person going to go to heaven? And I said, well, I can't make that judgment, but I can tell you this. She will be judged on the basis of what she did with what she knew. And Peter is saying, God is righteous, and he is offering the gospel to everybody. Okay. All right. So what are these resources? We must hurry along here. What are these resources? Well, the first resource he mentions is grace. Now, some of you have heard me talk about this before, but I think it bears repeating. What is grace? Well, the best definition of grace is in Ephesians chapter 1, where it says that, uh, well, now I can't quote it. I'm showing my age. Here, let me see. It says, Blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with, now listen to this, all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Some uh, uh, translations say in the heavenly realm. So this is how I picture it. There's where God is, and there's where you will find infinite knowledge, infinite power, infinite love, infinite wisdom, infinite everything. And Paul is saying in Ephesians, and Peter is talking about grace, that everything that's there is available to us. Now you stop and think about that. Of course, through Christ. Here's puny little me. And everything that God has is available to me. 
God's riches, some people say, at Christ's expense. I hear that quoted, and uh, if nobody asks the question, I do. Well, that's a nice statement, but what are the riches? Well, the riches are, in fact, everything that he has. So you say, that person has really wronged me. I can't forgive him. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. God's unlimited forgiveness is available to you. Or I have this difficult situation in my life and I just, I just don't have the power to... Now, wait a minute. God's unlimited power is available to you. I have this decision to make and I just can't ever... I just can't make this... Just, wait a minute. God's unlimited wisdom is available to you. We're talking about remarkable resources for growth. Everything that God has is available to you. Now, he doesn't give it to you all at once. That would be like giving a, a, a 10-watt light bulb uh, 10,000 volts of electricity all at once. It would... <laughs> you get it as you need it. But you get all that you need and more besides. It's God's unlimited version of whatever it is you need that you are given. All right? That's grace. Do you need wisdom? Unlimited wisdom. Do you need power? Unlimited power. Do you need to forgive somebody? Unlimited ability to forgive. Do you need love? Unlimited love. Do you need mercy? Unlimited mercy. If, if you don't remember anything else I said today, remember the meaning of grace. <laughs> it's God's riches all available to you through Christ. Okay? That's the first resource. The second resource is peace. Well, what is peace? Well, it's the Old Testament shalom idea. Well-being. Prosperity. Success. In the true sense of the word. That's what peace is. In fact, I went through the Old Testament one time when I was reading through the Old Testament, and I underlined, I have the copy at home of the Old Testament that I did this to, I underlined the times it said, remember to do all, A-L-L, that I tell you. Now, this is Old Testament, which we all say, oh, well, the Old Testament, you know, we have much better in the New. Now, wait a minute. This is Old Testament. That it may be well with you. God is interested in our peace, our shalom, our well-being. Did you ever think about it? He told them, he said, now you guys are coming out of Egypt and there were a lot of diseases in Egypt. You're going to be in a desert. You're not going to have any doctors. And if you will do what I tell you to do, I will put none of the diseases of Egypt upon you. But what did he tell them to do? Well, instead of throwing your waste into the streets, when you need to ease yourself, you go dig a hole and put it in and cover it up. Are you aware of the fact they didn't know anything about germs? The discovery of what that really meant when they did that came 3,000 years later. And they were benefited just by obeying God. He told them, now when you go to eat meat, don't you eat the fat. The fat belongs to God. You burn the fat on the altar and then you can eat the rest. Oh, so he was looking out for their cardiovascular health before anybody knew anything about cardiovascular health. 
Now, if somebody has a serious illness, you separate them from the rest, you quarantine them. In fact, when the Black Plague wiped out one-third of Europe, it was stopped by somebody who said, wait a minute, let's do what God said. Let's quarantine these people. And that's how they stopped the plague. Now, if you have something you need to purify, and it can be purified by fire, put it in the fire to purify it. See, they don't know anything about germs. God was telling them what they needed to do. And if you have something that can't be purified by fire, what you need to do is go get some running water, that'll be pure water, as pure as possible, out of a stream, and then you go get ashes of a heifer, and you stir it in that water, and then you wash it with that. Well, what would you have in ashes? Tell me, somebody. Lie! They were using a, a weak lie soap. 3,000 years before anybody knew anything about soap. I'm only showing you that God has always had the well-being of his people in mind. And so he says, grace be to you, all of the unlimited resources of God and the true prosperity that God will give you if you will hear what he has to say and do it. And these aren't going to be added. These are going to be multiplied. Now, I don't know if you ever figured this out. I had a sixth grade teacher that one time said to us, uh, what would you choose? If I choose to give you a penny uh, for each day of the month, or would you choose that I'd give you... No, no, I'm, I'm sorry. He said, would you choose that I'd give you $5,000? Or would you choose that if I gave you a penny on the first day, gave you two pennies on the second day, gave you four pennies on the third day, gave you 16 pennies on the second... Th- well, anyway... You go home and figure that out. At the end of the month, you're talking about a million and a half dollars. And God says, I'm going to multiply. Now, this was, this was good enough to begin with. <laughs> but he said, I'm going to multiply it to you. I'm going to make sure you have sufficient resources. So, well, what's the third thing we have? Verse 3. He says, uh, we have uh, divine power, okay? Divine power. That means the ability to perform what God tells us to do. He's going to give us supernatural power, all right? And all of this is going to be given by the knowledge of God. If you know how to relate to God, That's what opens up all this stuff we're talking about, if you know how to relate to God. A.W. Tozer said in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, the most important thought, the most important understanding that anybody can have is what they think about God. He said, if you were to extract from any person what comes to his mind when he thinks of the word God, you could predict with absolute certainty everything about that person's future. And so it's important that we understand God. Psalm 50 says there were people who made idols, and it says at the end of the chapter why they did it. It says, you thought that I was altogether like you. And that's why you're doing what you're doing, and that's why you're experiencing what you're experiencing, because you don't understand me. You don't understand how I think. You don't understand how I feel. You don't understand how I act. You don't understand my... you You don't understand anything about me, and you don't act accordingly. You will not act 
properly till you understand God. All right? In fact, A.W. Tozer said that's the only book he wanted to write. He said all the other books he wrote because he thought they were necessary. The only book he thought that he wrote that really was important was The Knowledge of the Holy. How many have ever read the book? If you haven't, you should. His divine power to perform what we understand about him. And, And if you notice, this is all given through the knowledge of him who hath called us to glory and virtue. All right, number D, if you're writing these down, here's the fourth one. A divine call. A divine call. It says he has called us to glory and virtue. Now, glory is a manifestation of excellence. That's what it is. Glory is is something that is excellent. We talk about the glory of a sunset. We're talking about a sunset that is so beautiful, you can't think of one that is any more beautiful than that. Or if we talk about the glory of youth, We're talking about a young man or a young woman. That's everything a young man or a young woman should be. It's just excellent. He's called us to that. He's called us to glory and virtue. I was thinking about John Wesley and Charles on the way here. One thing I do appreciate about them, and I think one of the reasons why they were so successful was they were committed to excellence. If you you sing any hymn that Charles Wesley wrote, it's going to be the best. They did not settle for anything less than the best. They, their, their presentation of the gospel, John's sermons, Charles' uh, uh, songs, are a manifestation of excellence. And I think that's why they have such tremendous power. Okay, But we're not just talking about that. We're talking about excellence of character. We're talking about excellence. He's called us to excellence. <laughs> All right? And virtue. The word virtue is the idea of valor, manliness, strength. All right? So that's, we've had a call to those two wonderful ideals. Uh, ideal strength. Ideal excellence. Just the very best. That's what we've been called to. When Christians are sloppy and Christians are careless and Christians are, are uh, lackadaisical and Christians are, yeah. I'm sorry. Christians should be the most interesting people in the world. Where anybody ever got the idea that Christianity is a second-rate way of living, I have no idea. Well, they've never seen true Christianity. It's all I know. All right. He's called us to glory and virtue. John says, we beheld his glory. And that's what he's calling us to. His power enables us to experience moral excellence. He calls us to participate in the divine nature. We're going to see that in just a moment. The fifth thing. He's given us exceeding great and precious promises. (laughs) Here's my favorite one. 2 Corinthians 9.8, and I'm sure most of you have heard me quote this. I say, if this was not in the Bible, and I got up and said this, people would say, John has an overreactive imagination. It can't be that good. God is able to make all grace abound... No limits towards you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, <laughs> may abound no limits unto every good work. That's in the Bible. I didn't write that. That's absolutely true. 
God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound unto every good work. In fact, when people call me on the phone and they oh, it's all by grace. I say, yeah, it is all by grace. Let me quote this verse. <laughs> that you may abound unto every good work. <laughs> all right. Here's another one. He gives us the peace that passeth all understanding. What? You're being burned at the stake and you're going to have peace? The logic of that situation is about as horrible as you can get. And yet you're going to have peace that passes all understanding? My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, not out of his riches. You see, if you give out of your riches, if you had a hospital bill of a million dollars and I gave you $50,000, that would be out of my riches. But if I gave you the total payment, and then gave you another million dollars besides, that would give you a little bit of an idea how rich I really am. By the way, I'm not. (laughs) He gives us, according to his riches, commensurate with how much he really has. Pardon me for shouting, but this just so excites me. Or this one, Hebrews 13.5. I'm going to quote this in the Amplified. Uh, I think in the King James it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, you know, the Greek was a very rich language. They had trouble really translating it and getting all the nuances of meaning into the English. So the Amplified Bible tries to help us a little bit. And so it tries to get all the nuances of the Greek into that. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Here it is. For God himself has said, I will not in any way fail you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not in any way leave you helpless, nor forsake you, nor let you down. Relax my hold on you. Absolutely not. Now we sing a song in the hymnal that says, how firm a foundation. And that last verse says, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. I had a sister come to me one time and said, why did he say that over and over again? I don't, I, it always irritates me to sing that. And I said, well, you go back and read Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, in the Amplified Bible, and you will know he was a Greek scholar, and he knew how strong that assurance was. Or this one. Oh, my dear, we must move. Psalm 84, 11. The Lord, listen to this. The Lord will give grace And glory, that's that excellence we're talking about, and the grace is this. No good thing will he withhold from them who walk uprightly. That is quite a statement. Or this one. They that receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. I look at people like John Wesley. I look at people like Condor Grebel. Condor Grebel and his people were a despised people. But do you know they were the first people in modern history to say that church and state should be separate, there should be freedom of conscience, there should be voluntary church membership, and there should be adult baptism. And nobody knew that. For hundreds of years, nobody knew that the freedoms, all of the freedoms of Western civilization 
come from these courageous people. Shall reign in life. I, I could give you example after example. John Wesley, I'll just say it this way, who historians will tell you saved England from a bloody revolution like France had by the preaching of the gospel. If you ever get to England, there's only one place in London that I would say is worth visiting more than any other, and that's the Wesley Museum. You'll go there and there'll be nobody there because nobody knows who he is. But he was an amazing man. Shall reign in life. That's the promise. The fifth thing. Oh, I see I have them numbered wrong. The divine nature is the next one. Actually given God's nature. Now, when parents adopt a child, they never can do this. They can't give his nature. I have a sister who adopted five children, and they were five children that turned out to be extremely challenging. Problem children of all sorts that they had no idea when they carried them home as a little baby. There was things in their genetics they did not understand, and they could not give those children their nature. But God actually gives us his nature. The same driving force that he is motivated by, given to us. And finally, escape the corruptions that are in the world. What's in the world? The law of therm- second law of thermodynamics that everything's going downhill. Everything's moving from order to disorder. Everything's moving from high energy to low energy. Everything's moving from integration to disintegration. It's all going downhill, and there's no scientist disputes that. And morally, that's what's happening, too. And it says we are able to escape the moral second law of thermodynamics, that force that would normally take us all down that road of disintegrating morals. We have escaped that. It's from chaos to cosmos, (laughs) Not the opposite. Okay. So those are the, those are the in remarkable resources. I mean, what more would you ask? What would you add to that list? What more do you need? Okay. Now, I'll tell you something. In Romans chapter 6, it says we're supposed to reckon that this is true. You mean we're just supposed to have wishful thinking? No. Paul says, if you reckon that this is true, then you will yield your members, and that's the key. God says he's made a good decision. I'm going to put all of heaven behind it. But he waits till you make the decision. He waits till you decide. And if you make a bad decision, I mean, obviously God's not going to put heaven behind that. So that's why knowledge is so important. That's why this epignosis is so important to understand at the moment when you have to make a decision how God thinks, what he has said, what Jesus did, his example, his teach. Have all that in your mind so that you make a decision that all of heaven can get behind. That's the secret. I had to tell you that because you're probably sitting there saying, how do you make this happen? You make it happen by your decisions. God will... Always back up the decision that he wants to see. And the reason why we experience so little grace is because we spend so much time making decisions that don't have that description. Do you know a synonym for selfishness? I mean, it's for sin. 
The synonym for sin, it's the exact synonym. I'm, I'm convinced you could go through the Bible, and for every place you put sin, you could put selfishness. And Brother Mick was talking about that this morning, too, and I'm sure he'll have a lot more practical things to say. Selfishness is the practical definition of sin. And if your self enters into it, you can just scrap. Now, God will continue to work with you and bring you to the point where he can finally ratify your decision. (laughs) He's a merciful God. But he will only, God will only support back up with all of heaven when you make a decision that all of heaven knows is the right decision. And then they will, they will back it up with everything I just told you. Romans chapter 6, if you want the passage, that's where Paul teaches this. He says, be dead. <laughs> and then reckon your body to be dead. And then if you reckon your body to be dead, you'll yield your members. And then you will unlock all of that we talked about. This is tremendous. And again, I could talk about people who, who exemplify that, who did that, demonstrated how it works. What is the reasonable response? Well, <clears throat> I didn't read this passage. Let, let's read the first part of this, down to verse, end of verse 4. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. To them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness. See, God is just. He, he doesn't withhold this from anybody. Through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And I forgot to tell you something. Did you notice at the top of your sheet, it says memory passage. 2 Peter 1, 1 to 11. Let's have verses 1 to 3 memorized by tomorrow. At the end of the week, we will have you write this out. All right. So please memorize those verses. All right. So, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And now we get the reasonable response. And besides all this, besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness charity. Okay. We are like a poor lad who has been chosen by a rich man to get a university education. Here's a little fella. In fact, that happened in our community. The Hesses, they became medical doctors because... Some rich neighbor saw the potential that Dr. David Hess had as a little boy, and he decided to finance his education. But that education would have amounted to nothing if Dr. David Hess had not appropriated that and used it. He had to put real effort into it. The resources were there. They were free. But they would not have accomplished one thing without hard toil and sweat over the books. And that's what, that's what Peter is saying here. Give all diligence. 
These people who don't believe there's any effort on our part involved. I don't know. I'd love to know how they read the Bible. He says it's going to be hard work. This will not be easy. It's a free offer, but it must be combined with strenuous effort. It's going to take a lot of work to make the good decision and carry it out by God's grace. That's going to be hard work. Nobody ever promised otherwise. The word add here is the Greek word that meant the, uh, they put on these Greek plays and then they had these wealthy patrons that would finance those plays. And they would, they would dump their money into it. That's what he's saying. Dump all you have into this. It will be a generous and costly cooperation. We sing in our hymnal, Awake my soul, stretch every nerve and press with glory on. We sing that. Stretch every nerve. Well, let's talk about the response. Faith. There's a little acronym for faith, too. Faith. Forsaking all, I trust him. Faith says, knowledge tells me something. I'm going to forsake everything, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to believe it. I'm going, to, I'm going to put everything I have into this. That's what faith is. Faith grasps the promise which God has given and says, I believe that promise. Okay? That's faith. And let me say one more thing. Is there a difference between obeying and pleasing? Now, we parents all know what it's like to go to town and say, now, Susie or Johnny, while I'm in town, I want you to straighten up your room and I want you to wash the dishes. And so they go to town. And Johnny or Susie straightens up their room and washes the dishes. And then they say, and if parents come home and that's done, sure, they obeyed. But some children have discovered something interesting. So Johnny or Susan says, you know, I heard mom say that the garden needed weeding. And it's a hot day. Oh, I hate weeding. But I'm going to do that because I want to see mom smile when she comes home. And so mom comes home, the room is straightened up, the dishes are done, and the garden is weeded. That's pleasing. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. Pleasing is more than just a grudging obedience. I don't know what God does with just if you just obey. He wants to see a person who embraces his will with pleasure and wants to say, look, I want to live today so... If I could see God, there'd be a big smile on his face. David one time did that. He said one day, I want to build a temple. Nathan said, go ahead and build it. Then in the middle of the night, God came to Nathan and said, no, go tell David, no, you're not going to build the temple. Uh, You're a bloody man. You're not going to build the temple. But I want you to say something more to David. I want you to say to David, did I ever tell anybody to build a temple? And you can look in the commands. There's commands there to build a tabernacle, but there are no commands to build a temple. 
God never gave a hint that he wanted a temple. And he said, you go ask David, did I ever say that I wanted a temple? The answer is no. But you tell David that I am so pleased, even though I'm not going to let him do this, I am so pleased he wanted to do it, that instead of building me a house, I'm going to build him a house. And that's where God made the promise that there would always be someone in David's family who sits on the throne. Because David pleased God. For all David's faults, you have to agree that David had a heart of passion to please God. And God can deal with an awful lot of faults. He doesn't overlook them, but he can deal with an awful lot of faults if you have a heart to please him. I'll just put that in there for what it's worth. So that's faith. Faith grasps the promise. I believe it. Then he says, add to your faith virtue. Well, I already told you that virtue is valor, manliness, strength. You see, there's some people, they see the promise, but they don't do anything. He says, you see the promise, go do it. (laughs) Add to your faith virtue. Rugged obedience. Whatever it costs. Go and do what God told you to do. He's telling us how to make this all happen, okay? This gets, it gets very practical. And he said, add to your virtue knowledge. Well, of course. <laughs> By doing, you begin to understand God. Okay? So the next time you face a similar decision, you say, look, been there, done that. I did what God told me to do. I have more faith than I had before because of what happened. And now I understand better how to make this next decision. And we don't have to understand. Knowledge is not... Now, the Bible says that you're to get knowledge. (laughs) And then it says, with all you're getting, get understanding. I think it's interesting how that's stated. By applying your knowledge, you get understanding. But you don't have to have any understanding to do what God told you to do. In fact, many times you won't understand. It's a little bit like uh, a little story I read. A physics teacher was trying to get the attention of a sleepy student. Mr. Smith, stand up. Smith stood up. Explain electricity. Smith shook his head in bewilderment. Professor, I can't think of it. Before class, I knew, but I have forgotten. The poor professor put his head on his hands and moaned. Oh, what a tragedy. Only you and God know what electricity is, and now you have forgotten. (laughs) The next day, one of his students said, I'm sure glad my professional friends were not at the meeting. I was embarrassed by you saying that we don't understand electricity. Well, do you know what electricity is? Yes. Well, what is it? Well, it is the flow of electrons from the negative to the positive pole. Thank you. And what is an electron? Even with only the car dashboard lights for illumination and riding in a car, I could see him blush. His answer had to be that electrons were small particles of electricity, and even a youngster knows that a word cannot be defined by itself. Nobody knows what electricity is, but we all know how to use it by obeying the laws of electricity. 
God does not ask us to understand. If we obey, there will be some things we understand, but we will never completely understand God. Moses came close. The Bible says he made known his acts, his ways unto Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. All they ever saw was his acts because they didn't enter into their experience with God like Moses did. Moses understood his ways. They understood only his acts. But anyway, that's off the subject. All right. Knowledge. So as we take these promises and we add to them virtue, we begin to have some knowledge of God. Okay? The next thing he says is temperance. Temperance is self-control. Okay? Well, as we begin to understand what obedience to God really produces, it inspires us to self-control. It inspires us to be more consistent with our obedience to God. Of course. We are motivated when we experience the promises of God by our obedience. Okay? And self-control leads us to patience. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? And by the way, do you know what biblical patience is? Biblical patience, if you look up the word, it's not just the ability to hang in there. It's not just the ability to endure. That's what we call patience. The word literally means cheerful endurance. You're singing while you're enduring. And he promises that this progression that we've been talking about leads to temperance. Or I'm sorry, to patience. Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He didn't endure the cross gritting his teeth. He, gritted his, he, he endured the cross with joy in, in view. Now, the Apostle Paul understood this. In Romans chapter 5, he says something that really does, I, I never can quite grasp. He says, I glory in tribulations. Really? Now, I had Latin. I didn't remember much of the Latin I learned, although they made us learn a lot of vocabulary. And <laughs> This is what we said about Latin. Latin's a dead language, as dead as dead can be. It killed off all the Romans, and now it's killing me. But anyway... In spite of our attitude, we did learn some Latin. The word tribulum means flail. It's the flail that you beat the grain, the heads, the grain out of the heads on the stock. That's what, tri- that's what the word tribulation comes from that word. And Paul says, I glory in tribulation. Because tribulation worketh patience. And patience works character. And character works hope. And hope results in love. So if you pray for love, you're in for an interesting sequence of experience. (laughs) All right. And that's what we are coming to next. Patience works godliness. That is God's very character. He is a patient, unchanging, steadfast God. He doesn't ever get ruffled. And it says, you will become like that. You will become like God through this process. Okay? And then, brotherly kindness. Well, of course. Brotherly kindness depends upon patience. It depends upon temperance. It depends upon knowledge. 
It depends upon uh, uh, valor. People don't understand this. Our late pastor, Lynn Martin, always said that the bedrock of all human relationships is forgiveness. Because we are all human. We're all going to disappoint each other. We're all probably all going to hurt each other, hopefully not intentionally. And the person who can learn to let it go, have patience with his brother, and not get ruffled, and not start to respond out of impatience, that person will build good relationships. He'll have a beautiful marriage. In fact, in all the wedding sermons I preach, I make sure the couple understands it. I say, look, you're standing here with a bunch of fuzzy feelings, and I hope you have lots of those, and I hope you can generate more after you're married. But that's fine. You can have that, and you should. But that will not really sustain your marriage. Your marriage will sustain your love. The promises you make, and any person who's married smiles when these promises are made. I'm going to love you in sickness and health and prosperity. Uh, Yeah, right. You're not supposed to understand those, but you're supposed to make those promises and you're supposed to keep them. And if you do, out of that soil will grow genuine love. It doesn't work the way the world thinks. The world thinks those fuzzy feelings are going to just take them off into the sunset. I learned that from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, your love will not sustain your marriage. Your marriage will sustain your love. And this applies also to the brotherhood. Our commitments to God and each other will be out of the soil. And and, uh, this whole series of things we talked about will be the soil out of which true love in the brotherhood will grow. As we keep our commitments, as we keep true to these things we talked about. And I must conclude. The next is charity. Charity has to do with loving those people out there. Now, there are many, many churches that want so badly to do evangelism, but a prerequisite to evangelism is brotherly love. If you can't love these people who disappoint you, who hurt you, who do all kinds of things that are injurious and frustrating, you'll never make it, you'll, you'll never make it out there. Those people are not going to be as nice to get along with. Now, people rail on our plain people. We sold frozen food for, for about six years. And my girls will tell you, they can say all they want to about the plain people, but they were our nicest customers. If we had a product that wasn't the greatest... They were understanding. They were forgiving. Brotherly love is the result that finally makes it possible for us to do the real thing that we all want to do, and that is relate to those people out there, and we must quit. I have a little bit more to say tomorrow. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Father, I thank you so much for these wonderful resources. And Lord, we can sit here and say that all sounds very nice, but is it true? Yes, it's true. And we will learn that it's true as soon as we begin operating on what you have told us and begin to have some experience with the way you operate based on our obedience. And bless these young people. Oh God, I just pray somehow they will establish this right here at the beginning of their lives and will truly prosper in a way that that my generation didn't. Oh God, bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Well, I don't know. You probably have a comment to make.